Welcome to the December 3rd, 2020 edition of Digging Out. I'm Claudia Shambaugh, your host. This program has us moving past November 3rd. It's now December 3rd, and we're moving right along toward the new year. We are digging out today with Ani Zonefeld, the founder and the president of Muslims for Progressive Values, and she's going to dig out from a number of a couple of millennia in how we consider what the Prophet Muhammad was all about in the very beginning and how it has been adapted in a patriarchal framework ever since. I hope you'll enjoy this interview today. We'll be right back after a station break. Welcome back to the show. Today's guest is Ani Zonefeld, who founded in 2006 and remains a president of Muslims for Progressive Values. She's also a Grammy certified songwriter and founder of Alliance of Inclusive Muslims, a human rights umbrella organization founded in Tunisia. Ani is a member of the Multi-Faith Advisory Council to the UN and is the co-chair of its gender working group. She designed an anti-hate speech curriculum for Muslim societies commissioned by the UN Office on Genocide Prevention and the Responsibility to Protect and is a member of the Council for Foreign Relations. Ani's overseen the Muslims for Progressive Values signature program, hashtag Imams for She. She gave her TEDx talk that I really highly recommend. It's entitled Islam as American as Apple Pie. And she's the subject of an award-winning documentary titled Al-Imam, screened at the Cannes Film Festival last year, 2019. I've had the repeated pleasure of hosting Ani on my other show, Ask a Leader, and welcome her today to Digging Out. Hi, good morning, wherever you may be. Yes, and Ani comes to us today from her home in Los Angeles. So let's begin with the most general of themes, and then we're going to eventually work our way to various legislative and some judicial measures in the U.S., and we'll cover an important upcoming event, Celebration of Life, that's annually held. Celebration of Life, which is a very important event that will cover the abundance of riches that will be a part of that form, and it will be held on December 10th. But let's begin, Ani, with your path, your values as a Muslim. And I'm struck by what you have taught us about Muhammad's wife, Hadija, and the feminism that she brought early on in Islam that is not known by but a very few people. Yeah, correct. So uh, Hadija was Prophet Muhammad's first wife. And, but what's really more interesting is this, is that she was a trader and um, an import exporter in current terms. And she was a financier for the early converts to Islam because without her wealth, the, the early converts to Islam would have died. So she was the financier. 
And how she met Prophet Muhammad was really interesting. She, he has this reputation of being an honest man. So she hired him. And he is much younger than her by about like how? 20, by 20 years. Wow. So it became a love story. And so basically she proposed to him. And uh, so they got married. And so here you have the Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, you know, married to an older businesswoman and who was really the, the love of his life and a core supporter of Islam and him and his work and who when he was really insecure about the revelations she was the one that was the rock right and so it's really interesting if you take it to the 21st century how I'm sure your audience is very aware of the forced marriage between young Muslim women to very old men, which is so contradictory to the inception of Islam itself, right? So this is this contradiction of how Muslims practice Islam or Muslims say they practice Islam to the real values of what the Quran is about and the Prophet Muhammad as, as the example and with Khadija, obviously. So Ani, when do you think she disappeared from an acknowledgement of and her relationship to Muhammad? Um, the patriarchy, I think it disappeared with the passing of Prophet Muhammad. I, my personal take is Islam got buried when they buried him, uh, the true teachings of Islam, because what happens, what happened was the patriarchs came back and they usurped Islam and the, the nemesis of Prophet Muhammad, the Qureshis, converted to Islam and basically usurped that for themselves. And, and so we went back to the patriarchy, the misogynistic, and the enslavement, and this, the classist system that Islam in the Quran was revealed to undermine. And so the, the perfect example is if you read the Quran, there is no prohibition for women to lead prayer, to be spiritual equals. We are all spiritual equals, no matter whether you're straight or gay, what have you. And yet in the way Islam is being practiced right now, only straight men can lead prayer. And so this is not much different than other faiths, traditional faith, you know, the conservative branch of many faith traditions. And so Islam is the same. And so when the example that we use in the documentary about myself called Al-Imam, it is really about how the spiritual equality is a really key factor to building the values of egalitarianism and of equality of all of us as humanity. And so when the first female uh, Imam prayer leader was appointed by Prophet Muhammad himself. And so the fact that we were not taught that is indicative of the cover-up, right? And that is kind of uh, the tradition of many religious religions as well. I know Catholicism has the same issue and so on and so forth. So you're listening to KUCI in Irvine. That's kind of like the basis from which we underpin our values and the foundation from which we build Muslims for progressive values is the sound theology that is rooted in uh, egalitarian and human rights and social justice. And if um, Muslims claim to Islam to be a religion of peace, well, you can't have peace if your heart is not at peace. And 
your heart cannot be at peace if you don't live a life of, uh, of justice, uh, of just, of being fair, of being kind and compassionate, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the, the heart of the organization. And you mentioned in that it's a, I really do want to steer people to the Islam as American as apple pie. And there's so many other formats and forms that you've appeared in, but you talk about in the Quran, justice is mentioned 53 times but there is no justice in place. Yes. And that's a sad part because the work that I do particularly is to challenge the human rights abuses that is being justified in the name of Islam or Sharia law. And there are two concepts here, Sharia and Sharia law. And unfortunately, people confuse and you know, inter- use those two terms interchangeably. And they are two very different concepts. And the religious leaders do it intentionally. The religious scholars of Islam, for whatever reason, don't differentiate that the difference in concepts clearly enough for the lay people, right? And so most Muslims in the Muslim world think that Sharia law is God's law, but it isn't. It's actually a man-made construct, 100%. The term Sharia is in the Quran, and the definition of that is the, the spiritual path it's the watering hole that quenches your spiritual thirst. So it's a set of guidelines on how to live a, a full and um, just lifestyle, uh, being kind to the environment, being kind to your fellow human beings, etc., etc. So it's not a set of laws, but Sharia law is a set of laws. And that came about long after Prophet Muhammad died. Now, so if I was going to go back in time and go to Prophet Muhammad, and I ask him, dear prophet, can you please define me what Sharia law is? He's going to look at me like I'm crazy. Like it's it, anachronism or something. Yeah, well, like, it, like, it, did, it didn't exist. Uh-huh, it's a, right. Because Sharia law is not in the Quran. It's, it's a man-made construct that was created after he died by politicians, by religious leaders to assert authority over their citizens. And so... It's an extrapolation of the reading of the Quran by medieval and misogynistic men. And as you can imagine, it's not very fair to women and it's not very fair to the poor and to the enslaved, enslaved, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's a reinforcing power. And so Sharia law in its current form is the same. It's in reinforcing patriarchal structures and power and the power held in the, in the hands of men straight men. And so when I do this work at the United Nations, when I challenge uh, Muslim majority country that justify the, you know, child and forced marriages or female genital mutilation and cutting and all this awful other cultural practices, I challenge it on the basis there's no such thing in the Quran. This, this is not Islamic, period. You're making it up. This is a cultural norm. It has no basis in religion. So don't use religion as the pretext for exemption, right? Okay. So that, that's how I argue against a lot of the human rights abuses. And the same with the issues of uh, LGBT rights in the context of Islam. And the same with freedom of expression. There's a lot of issues where in Muslim majority countries where Muslims are, are punished for expressing unpopular thoughts or dissenting thoughts, right? Whether it be political or religious and and they use religion as an excuse. And there is no such excuse and that's the problem. And 
So when you read the media, when you read a lot of the news and you hear about all this injustice in the Muslim world in the name of religion, it's unfortunate because, you know, it's just a power tool. You know, religion is a powerful tool. And so that's what politicians use. And so, Ani, the notion of blasphemy, is that concept anywhere in the Quran? No. And so blasphemy has been practiced, uh, has been the climate since the inception of Islam. Uh, people blaspheme all the time, Prophet Muhammad's time, and no one was punished for it. No one. Um, how no. do you know that? I mean, how can that be known? It's, it's in the secondary text called Hadith, and, and there's no punishment for it in the Quran. So if Muslims claim that Quran is the word of God, then why are they not following this so-called word of God, right? But instead, what they're doing is they're following what has been practiced in the last hundreds of years since Prophet Muhammad died. And that is how the politicians have used it to curtail, to silence dissenters for their own political gain. Now, you did not see blasphemers punished or apostates punished during Prophet Muhammad's time and during the most successful era of the Islamic culture, you know, during the Cordoba era for a few hundred years in Spain and Morocco, etc. When there was freedom of thought, and expression and freedom of conscience, those societies really flourished. And it was when the, the curtailing of freedom of expression, the, the, the curtailing of the, the right to express your critical thought, that's when societies really, Muslim societies really fell apart. And that's why in the Muslim world right now, we are a bunch of, a lot of failed states basically just simply because of this curtailing and controlling of your God-given right to think critically and to express it, which is stated in the Quran. To be a Muslim is to use your critical thinking. We are encouraged to use it and we are being given the freedom to use it, even if it's blasphemous. And yet that is not what Muslim majority countries practice and they call themselves you know, Islamic states. They shouldn't and, call themselves Islamic states. <laughs> they have no right to. <laughs> so conversion that it's not allowed and that a, an, a Muslim cannot marry out of Islam, is that also part of Sharia law that was codified after the Quran? Yes, correct. And so, uh, so we have obviously created that counterculture and for the last 13 plus years as an organization, we conduct interfaith marriages where non-Muslims do not convert to Islam to marry. And this is particularly the case when Muslim women are marrying outside of the faith. And there has been many cases also documented in Hadith, which is a secondary text that was an accumulation of writings of historical practices basically. And there was a lot of evidence during Prophet Muhammad's time when people converted to where there was, would be a non-Muslim couple, for example, and the woman converted to Islam. The husband didn't. And they've been married for 20 years and nobody got punished and they still stayed married. And so you have all those tr good traditions that have not been taught to us that are basically silenced and covered up. And what we have been taught for hundreds of years is that no Muslim women can only marry Muslim men, which is a total, you know, farsity. 
And it all has to do with control. It has all to do with uh, tribal interpretations of Islam. So for example, back in the days, um, and also today in some traditions, like in some Hindu castes until today, when the woman marries, the woman becomes part of the husband's property, family pro uh, property, right? So she becomes sort of enslaved into that family. And this mindset used to be rampant for, uh, for many societies, especially tribal societies for centuries. So when Islam was revealed, when uh, it protected the Muslim woman. So when you marry, it's a contractual agreement between two adults of sound mind. And so the woman gets to keep her property, gets to keep her religion, gets to keep her name, her culture, etc. And she can dictate what she wants out of the marriage. It's a contract. And so this was a way for Islam to counter the tribal practices of marriage, which is when the girl marries, she belongs to the, the husband's family. She has to give up her religion, her her tradition, her culture, she's not allowed to visit the family, it, it, all of that. And she has to adopt the religion of the husband. And believe it or not, Claudia, when you go to the mosque now and you go and talk to the imam and you ask the imam, so why is it the Muslim woman cannot marry a non-Muslim man? He will say, oh, because traditionally it is, it is a given that the children will adopt the religion of the husband. It is utterly nonsense because in real life, what we have seen, when the Muslim man marries a non-Muslim woman, the children end up adopting the, the mother's religion. And so their logic is obviously illogical. And so that's how we argue back against a lot of these traditional practices that has no basis in the Quran and that actually contradicts the Quran. And you said you use the word traditionally. Imam will, will lean on tradition and not say in the scripture to draw it straight from the Quran. So that there is a big kink in what is granted the individual. Correct. So okay. there's the Quran. Um, as what we see as what is permissible and what is prohibited. And there are, you know, two things that are prohibited and everything else is permitted. And there's also in the secondary text examples from which we can lift. There are good old traditions that we can lift to as an example that complements the Quran's teachings. What a different world, my goodness. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Digging Out. And my guest is Ani Zonneveld, and she is the founder, and she's the current president of Muslims for Progressive Values, and founder and board member of Alliance of Inclusive Muslims, giving us such a profound, critical look at the foundational aspects of Islam and how it's been reinterpreted. I guess I just want to quickly ask a question in the sort of historic sort of unraveling of how Islam is observed. Do you think that the patriarchs following Muhammad's death, that they learned a lot from Christians about how the patriarchy could reinterpret what a scripture had left behind? Yes, absolutely. And from the Jewish rabbis. So a lot of that also influenced Islam after the passing of Prophet Muhammad, yeah. And the, I wanted to ask about when you talked about the Cordoba era, that was just before the diaspora of Jews in Spain, correct? That's just the heyday. It was like 
uh, with yep. the from around 700 AD up until about the 14th century. Something that's the period the the Cordoba era and the thriving intellectual movements occurred. I don't remember quite when, but it was during the Cordoba era. They called Caliphate of Cordoba. There were a lot of intellectuals of all faiths, including Jews, that had really high positions in the administration of that governance. And so it was really egalitarian in that way. Obviously, there were some not totally democratic. It's a dynasty, right? So it's not a democratic system. I'm looking it up. It's between 929 to 1031, 1031. That was the the highlight of Islamic enlightenment. It was an early renaissance that's sort of Mm -hmm. been sort of erased a little bit by the the European renaissance later, which is another, that's another cultural factor to consider. So I'd like for us now to turn our attention to the U.S., our own kind of, you call it creeping Christian law, Sharia law expression. There is the Religious Freedom Reformation Act that's being interpreted by religious institutions to justify all kinds of beliefs that are a very patriarchal kind of imposition of values on all non-white sorts of constituents. Can you talk about where we are now in terms of how that's being interpreted. And then I'll give you a chance to talk about where you think the current construct of our Supreme Court and our judiciary is putting perhaps the Muslims for progressive values, uh, making it uphill to what you want to advance. Yeah, so what's been very disconcerting in the last few years is the use of the Religious Freedom Reformation Act or RIFRA to justify discrimination in the name of religion. It wasn't intended for that. It was intended to benefit religious minorities, such as Native Americans, whose land was usurped for development by the government, and a few other cases. It was signed into law by President Clinton. But what's become the the case is the use of RIFRA by religious, conservative religious organizations to justify, say, a discrimination against LGBT people. And so during the Trump administration, people in the medical field are allowed to opt out of serving LGBT people if they felt that it contradicted their or it compromised their values, their Christian values. But it didn't say Christian values, it compromised your religious values. And this is really appalling for me as a Muslim. I see the abuse of religion and how destructive it is in basic human rights and in basic governing of a country. It's a sure way to a failed state when you start allowing religion to dictate how you behave. And so here in the United States, about two and a half years ago, there was a case where a conservative Muslim community used or tried to use RIFRA, Religious Freedom Reformation Act, to justify female genital cutting as a religious expression. And unfortunately, we had a federal law against female genital mutilation and cutting in the United States, but that federal judge threw that law out as being unconstitutional. So now the legislators are going back to the drawing board and 
tweaking some language and hopefully it, it will become law of the land again. But as of right now, we do not have such a law in place. It is uh, very much a um, state by state. So yeah. Ani, I wanted to ask, pardon me, about the, the sort of, there's this tactical aspect of that allowing for feminine genital mutilation to continue, it would serve the right nationalistic religious movement in the US, it would allow them to sort of continue to vilify Islamic practices. Exactly. It sort of, it gets a lot of jobs done. (laughs) Yes, and the, the, the thing is that Muslim community sought the advice of, oh my God, I forget his name, a very conservative Jewish lawyer, Alan Dershowitz? Yes. Okay. <laughs> As an advisor. And so it's remarkable how birds of a feather flock together. And it doesn't matter because for them, it justifies their particular religious mandate or their religious prism. And we also are starting to see how the Muslim mosques are starting to to utilize and to educate their public through forums in their congregations on the use of RIFRA in defending their religious right to do whatever, X, Y, and Z. And you see these Muslim intellectuals who are experts in the constitution really educating the community. Well, this is how the religious Christian right has been doing it. And so this is sort of like, here are lessons from which you can learn from in order for you as the Muslim who are oppressed through Islamophobia, et cetera, et cetera, for you to also use this as a way of propping up your interpretation of Islam. And for me as a progressive Muslim, this is a religious trend that is happening that I find very dangerous and that I think the progressive left non-Muslims are clueless And that's the red flag that I want to raise is that, yes, I understand your your impetus and your need to be inclusive of Muslims because you see the the Muslim population being demonized by the Republican Party, etc. But please be aware that you should also be just as critical of Muslims and what their values are and what they actually practice and believe um, as you are as critical with your own faith traditions. So don't, please do not give, just because someone's wearing hijab or someone is is a Muslim, um, give them a pass because that's them using the democratic system, the democratic party with a capital D for their own particular purposes as well. So you bring the same people that are in the democratic party, not all, but the, the same, some of the Muslims who are in the democratic party are not egalitarian when it comes to within the religious faith tradition. So they'll say, oh, we support LGBT rights, but only if you're not a Muslim. (laughs) Well, that doesn't work. That's hypocrisy. And so we've spoken about this on another program, but in, in digging out together here, clearing the debris, there's really important vocabulary in when you're talking about how, especially under the current administration, the remark about Islam hates us. And you've given us vocabulary to understand the reaction here. There's Islamophobia, and you use the term, I think it's much more important word, miso-Islamia. Please just walk us through a brief understanding of that before we continue on what is happening with our freedoms around the world. 
Right. So phobia is a fear of Islam. This is not fear. This is hate. Uh, and the Islamia part is the bigger definition of Islam, everything related to Islam, whether it be Muslims, whether it be the theology of Islam. So it's a broader definition, and it really goes to the crux of the meaning or the, the heart of the problem. And so that's why I think that's more of a, Mr. Islamia is more of a, an accurate definition. But the term Islamophobia is uh, has become the term that people can connect to and understand and relate. And that has become the vocabulary. So it is what it is. And the culture has, the folks behind the term Islamophobia has worn that definition. So since you brought that up in a previous program that I've been trying to listen for that expansion of vocabulary, it's not budging right now, but I'll, I will continue to listen for that. And we can, we can take that up as maybe there are new trends afoot. So let's talk about the freedom of expression or the lack thereof. There is, now we're going to move out of the American body politic just to take up, for example, a Nigerian 20-year-old performer singer who's been sentenced to death by hanging in a Sharia court system. Give us please that case study. And maybe that case study is going to be something that your fundraiser that you'll be holding on December 10th, Celebration of Life, maybe you'll be holding up that particular case among other cases. So talk about that Nigerian singer who is, I believe, incarcerated, but the sentence has not been met out yet. Correct. Okay. And so, uh, Claudia, you've come to our Celebration of Life last year and you saw how we highlight Saudi women in prison for no good reason. We've highlighted so many human rights cases and the Muslims that are fighting against those human rights issues and sometimes the Muslims themselves who are sentenced to death and tortured for uplifting human rights in their home country. And a lot of times when we read the media, we, we never read Muslim organizations and Muslim names who are the ones fighting for human rights, right? You only hear the Western organizations being named like Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, etc. But there are Muslim human rights organizations that are actually doing the work. And this sort of void of information by the media is a disservice to the public because it basically leaves out that Muslims also are doing this work and being tortured and killed because they're Muslims by their own government, right? Right. And so... It also creates, it adds to Islamophobia that, oh, only Muslims are the human rights abusers, but not the defenders. And this is a huge problem. And so celebration of life is a way for us not just to raise the cases, the abhorrent human rights abuses, but it's also to point out the other Muslims who are also fighting these human rights abuses. I think that's just as important. So the case of this Nigerian is a 20-year-old, he's a singer-songwriter, and he belongs to a very old Muslim tradition, Sufi tradition. Ah. The Sufis, you know, they have their saints, they have their teachers, and so he wrote a song on how his Sufi teacher is so important, more important than Prophet Muhammad, in, in how it, it is affecting his day-to-day -day life. And so because of that, the more conservative elements of Muslims in Nigeria that control the Sharia court system have sentenced him to death by hanging. Now, during Prophet Muhammad's day, he was blasphemed all the time. He, you know, people 
uh, insulted him, tried to kill him many, many times, and he never went after them. There was a case of a woman who always threw trash in front of his house every day. <laughs> he would just keep sweeping it off every day. And then one day, there was no trash in front of his house. And so he went out to the mar marketplace and asked around, you know, this person that kept throwing the trash, what happened, you know? And the, what he found out was this woman uh, got ill. So he went to visit her oh. to make sure she was going to be fine. So this is a perfect example of someone who didn't punish any, anyone for trying to insult him or Islam, right? Instead and of so, turning the other cheek, it's picking up the other's trash. Exactly. And so here you have this world and yeah. so many examples of Muslims going berserk in defending Prophet Muhammad's name in Islam. I'm sorry, folks. We do not need, Muslims do not need to be defending Prophet Muhammad's name or Islam, and especially by way of violence. It has no place. And so, as a matter of fact, they are the blasphemers, right? So same with this particular situation. This young man would not have been sentenced to death or even punished for such a song. And so this is an issue that we're highlighting. And so we're, we're going to be talking to the United Nations Special Rapporteur for Cultural Rights, because she, she's been a longtime ally of us and we've been working together on so many cases. Her name? Highlighting these issues. Uh, her name is Karima Banoon. Oh, and, and she will be in the program. Yes, and she's a professor of law at University of Davis and she is the United Nations Special Rapporteur for Cultural Rights. So how long has this person been detained and are there... I mean, with, we'll talk about the celebration of life, but is there some ongoing measure listeners can take up to speak on behalf of this performer? And so we, this young man has been detained since March earlier this uh, March this, this year. year. Okay. Yeah. And the latest news that I got yesterday from Dr. Banoon is that there was a hearing in the Sharia court. So they got a lawyer, but it's a civil lawyer, not a Sharia lawyer, because there's two systems here. You have the Sharia courts for the Muslims and you have the civil court, which is for Muslims and everyone else. And so the case was being argued in the civil court as being, well, this is unconstitutional because Nigeria has its own set of uh, you know, civic law. And so this Sharia court falls out of line with the civic court. So there's this constant push and pull between which set of laws holds the upper, you know, the upper hand, right? And this is the case in Malaysia and so many other Muslim majority countries, as a matter of fact. Wow. And so I think by supporting is if you join us and you can show your support by your presence, obviously that would be wonderful to know that there are so many people that are listening to this message that we're putting out, listening to the cases that we're promoting and highlighting the issues and, and how to move forward, right? And how to be in solidarity with the work that we do because it is hard for a Muslim human rights organization to be heard. It is very hard for a Muslim human rights organization to actually stand up against the Goliath of Saudi Arabia and the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, which is the umbrella of organization of all the Muslim countries, which most of them are all for human rights abuses. And you have the underdog such as ours, you know, fighting that fight. So your presence would uh, show show everyone that there is a support for the work that we do. And that is really important. 
So I'm thinking of a couple of themes, opportunities coming together here is with the, the drama that's been ongoing in our American body politic for the last four years, and that's the debris I'm talking about trying to remove in this programming we're doing on this show, that is there with, with nuance, that nuance has been, it's been hung over and over, and we're not getting more deep thinking about cultural norms and the origins of those cultural norms and what was really what's really in the Quran and, and what you're talking about today. So could you talk about whether the current pandemic has provided maybe some different situations? I don't want to call it opportunities because there's just too much damage going on, but there are there different circumstances that Muslims for progressive values can have a, a broader forum to give, to sort of make some inroads into introducing this nuance. Talk about how you're able to do that, Ani. Yeah, I mean, I th- obviously, Zoom calls and meetings and forums, um, those are all powerful ways of being present. And even despite the COVID-19 environment, I've actually been extremely busy with all sorts of conference and presentations and interviews and I've chaired, you know, UN panels. I've chaired freedom, the, the right for freedom of religion and belief uh, forums, uh, international forums that was organized by the Dutch government. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've, I've been very present in that sense. But on here in the United States, you know, our chapters, we have eight chapters in the US and we've been very active virtually with all sorts of conversations and forums. And it has attracted you know, what we do in Los Angeles is not just for Los Angeles anymore. It's, right. It's attended by folks all over the U.S. and even international, you know, Bosnia and Albania and the U.K., for example, because of the time differences and stuff. So we try to accommodate those time differences even for what we organize in Los Angeles. So I think that there is a lot more um, of cross-marketing and cross-cultural exchanges as a result of that, which has been very good. Um, and, I, and we will definitely be continuing with it. If anything, we'll be prob- probably expanding the, the, the format and you know, holding uh, regular webinars on specific issues. And because I think now that people are more comfortable with Zoom calls and whatever, even though we are tired of it, but when we start um, getting back to quote unquote normal, where we're you know, able to travel and especially for myself, I think it would be a, a good way of actually keeping some of the new good cultural stuff that this COVID-19 has been able, has forced us to into, for example. Like I know, for example, that I'm sure moving forward, even with uh, the vaccination being en masse and everyone getting themselves inoculated, um, there will still be some remnants of this new culture from COVID-19 of doing, doing conferencing and contributing to one-hour panel discussions by way of virtual rather than flying to the location. You know, so um, it's less taxing, it's less expensive, and it's better for the environment. So I think that those are some of the positive cultural downfalls that we will probably, not just MPV, but I think many organizations and institutions will probably adapt as, oh, well, you can't come, that's okay. We'll have, you know, virtual capabilities. For those of you who just joined us, let me introduce my guest again. She's Ani Zonnefeld. She's the founder 
and the president now of Muslims for Progressive Values and founder and current board member of Alliance of Inclusive Muslims. We're recording this program on December 1st in case something something happens between now and broadcast. So I would like for you to sort of project what you see are the possibilities of the leadership of the Biden-Harris administration to mediate Islamophobia or Miso-Islamia on Izonfeld. Yeah, I think that there will probably um, be more of a mindfulness towards that because there is a, obviously the Muslim ban or the ban of many Muslim immigrants and refugees from many of these countries or just travel bans, you know, with visas being frozen. Um, I think that's going to return to uh, the same levels, um, a, a same policy. Um, and obviously that had nothing to do with curtailing um, radicalism, radicals or extremists from entering America. That all had to do with just, just I don't know, a, a small mindedness policy, because if it was really to do with being the safety of America, then Saudi Arabia would be the first on the list, not Iran, not um, uh, Sudan and so many other countries, right? So um, I think too that what I'm hoping that because it was the progressives that really came out for Biden and Kamala Harris, I'm hoping that they will include progressive Muslims at the table because during Obama days, he had mostly conservative Muslims um, at the table and guiding his policies. And that's, I think he allowed for the conservative Muslims to dictate what is Islam and what Islam and Muslims should be. And I'm hoping too that the difference between Biden and Obama is that Biden will not put up with the dictatorship um, of Saudi Arabia, of, um, of Egypt, and whatever other dictators out there. Because I felt like Obama was too giving to uh, Muhammad, um, to the dictators of, uh, of the Muslim world. I mean, I think he had a tough walk, Obama did, but I, I would, I'm a bit critical because I, I'm critical because he, he is supposed to be the progressive for his time. And I just felt that his policy, his foreign policy was not progressive enough. It was not rooted in human rights enough. And so I'm hoping that between Biden and Harris, that the prism, the prism and the compass would be human rights values and universal values. And I'm also hoping that the, the Equality um, Reformation Act will be become law. You know, this is our American constitution. We need to have this amended because it was not certified. The 38th Street was not certified for whatever political reasons, and it needs to be certified. And once that 38th state has been certified, then we would have a constitutional amendment which give women the word women as rights, you know. So this is my hope for domestic American policy as well, that really reflects also internationally, because what happens in our backyard resonates internationally. So if we have awful policies on racism and structural issues, on healthcare and the environment, et cetera, if we don't get it together here in the United States, 
it's tough to make those changes to influence change internationally. So we got to put our money where our mouth is and we have to take care of what's at home just as much as we have to take care of what is international. So there's a segue here when we're talking about the Biden-Harris administration and for Into the Celebration of Life is on December 10th at three Pacific Standard Time will be this event and the Attorney General of Minnesota, Keith Elson, I don't know if he overlapped with Kamala Harris as Attorney Generals. They may have overlapped for maybe by a year or so. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. But do you think Keith Ellison has a special relationship and special in with Kamala Harris to sort of bring in some of those concerns and, and codify some new ways of, of looking at all of yeah. those kinds of freedoms? Yeah. I don't know. I haven't had that conversation with Keith yet, but thank you for <laughs> I'll keep you updated on that. <laughs> All right. That's, a, that's an in there. Keith has been, Keith has been a, a longtime supporter of Muslims for Progressive Values. He was the first Muslim congressman uh, elected to Congress. And not only that, but he was also the co-chair of the LGBT caucus. And he's a straight African-American man right and and so he's always supported our work because we have been truly you know we we really practice what we preach and he used to get so much grief from the conservative muslims who also support him just simply because he's a muslim and and they they used to they would taunt him like why do you support mpv and uh, you know they support lgbt rights and his responses to them would be well and so should you and so He's been unwavering in his support for, for MPV. And so when I reached out to him, he, his res, he, instantly he responded to me, of course, um, I will be there and uh, tell me you know, what time and I'll put it in, in my calendar. And so we're going to have the virtual equivalent of a private reception uh, with Keith Allison. And obviously, you know, he is in charge of uh, as attorney general prosecuting um, the police officers uh, for the killing of George Floyd. So we will talk about that, but we will talk about FGM law or lack thereof in Minnesota. As an attorney general, he's in charge of all of those legal aspects of it. But I would like it to be, um, it's going to be a, a very personal conversation um, in long form, much like you know our conversation. So, but the difference is that it's not going to be a webinar. For those who pay to, to part of this private reception, you are going to be part of that conversation. So that's the privilege that you would get is a, a real genuine conversation, roundtable conversation with Keith Allison, which I think is going to be such a privilege because he's he's got so much that he could share. And just as I'm sharing so much of my thinking and my thought process for policy and, and what have you, um, he's got his as well. And I think it would be a wonderful opportunity for your your audience, your intellectual audience, to actually participate in this conversation, and come, you know, as you would as a reception with your favorite drink, and you know, put on a shirt and tie if you want if, or not, you know. So it, it would be very nice. But it's a feast, and I, I've not just the last one, but the, I've been to many now <clears throat> celebrations of life. You really bring a, just like an A list of folks to these celebrations of life, and have such a wonderful way of presenting a very educational component of where the blasphemy laws have been 
meted out against individuals, courageous and creative individuals all over the world. So uh, let's talk about this. It's an annual event. This time it will be December 10th. And people would, when do they log on to start and talk about all the abundance of riches in your guests, Ani? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we're so blessed because, okay, so I'll start from the beginning. So it's in, uh, December 10th is International Human Rights Day. Oh, and that's when we're hosting the Celebration of Life, which is our annual uh, human rights event. And um, it's designed to, to highlight human rights defenders, uh, both here in the United States and internationally. And so there are two parts to the program. The one at three o'clock, Los Angeles time is at three o'clock. And you log in a few minutes, 10 minutes to the hour to three. And Keith Allison will be on from three to 3.50. And this is the private reception style conversation, round table conversation. And we'll have a 10 minute break. And at four o'clock Los Angeles time to 5.30, we will have uh, Karima Banoon, the United Nations Special Rapporteur. We will have Blair Imani, who is a phenomenal mm -hmm. uh, influencer. Uh, she's African-American Muslim, and she's also NPV's ambassador. And she's got this, this 30 second Smarties program that has really taken off. And mm -hmm. she's been on a conversation with Gloria Steinman. And she's just like, hot, hot, hot. She's just so smart and she's uh, young and she's, she's a real treat. So she's going to be on as well. And we also have uh, performers. There is Leila, Leila Milky. She's an American of Lebanese descent and she's performed a song. Uh, she's on a, a, one of Disney's uh, shows as a performer and a singer songwriter. We have Danielle, she's a Muslim, and Amira Unplugged is a singer, and she, oh, she has a huge news to share with us on the show, and she's a phenomenal singer, and there's Sophia alone, she is half Moroccan, half French, also a performer, and she's also the producer of the event, and then we have a non-Muslim, Danielle Lapresti, and she is going to sing a song about LGBT rights from a Christian context. And so it's a fantastic song, video. And so she's also gonna be our guest. And so we have all these women, uh, you know, contributing their time, their talents, and they're gonna also not just showcase their song, but they're also going to share what makes them tick. I think it's really important for people to really understand why people get up every morning and do the work that they do and sing and, you know, all that good stuff, right? As human beings. And there's some men too in the program. Yes. And then the host of this program from the four to five 30 is Ahmed Eldin. And he is a Emmy nominated or maybe award actually a winner for several shows. And he's on Al Jazeera, he's on BBC and on NBC and uh, so he's going to be our host, and he's 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 quite a he's quite a talent, uh, and a really good-looking guy too. So, um, so yeah, so we've got a very strong lineup, and uh, besides the music, and obviously, as you can see, the performers are all Muslim women, and I'm thinking I might even throw in the song. Why not? And you should. Um, <laughs> and it's just even here in the United States, and this is something important that your audience should know that even here in the United States, there is a lot of censorship for the expression of Muslim women in the Muslim communities. 
And so for us, this is a way to really counter, create that counterculture. Here are strong Muslim women with their voices, their singing, their creativity, their thoughtfulness, and their intellect, and how we're countering that juxtaposed with what's happening in some of the Muslim societies. So I'm really curious how this is going to work, Ani, next on International Human Rights Day, December 10th, the celebration of life. How interactive is it going to be? And we can we can all probably see how many are attending. But is there any way there will be ways to interact with people because we aren't going to be together? And that being together was always so, so interesting and life changing in, in, in a very sort of special way. How will that forum bring in attendees? To what extent can we interact or participate, if, if at all? Right. So the first part with Keith Allison, absolutely, you'll be able to interact because that will be just on, on the Zoom. And right. like I said, that would be, it will not be a webinar. It would be a roundtable. Right. You know, Keith and I will be in a conversation for a good 15, 20 minutes, and then you'll have a good 30 minutes where we will all be having a conversation based on what he spoke or what we discuss or whatever people won't want to talk about with Keith. And the the second part of the program is going to be more of a performance. And, okay. Uh, but it will not, it will be interactive as well because the chats will be open. Okay. Um, At least that and, part. Yeah, there's that part, but also on the Give Butter site, which is where you'll be able to interact and you show your your form of expressions, etc. You know, they have you know all kinds of gifts and for you to you know to share your 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 comments. And so it will be interactive in that you'll be able to see who's attending, you know, on both platforms. And we're also obviously encouraging people to donate on uh, during the program itself. So there's a friendly competition going on between the different teams that has been created to see who's raising more money and so on and so forth. So I'm hoping that it would be a fun, musical, enriching, and you know, not just in a heartfelt way, but intellectually as well, because I think it's important. There's not enough intellectual stuff that is stimulating and fun, and I just... I, you know, I always like intellectual stuff, but also fun. So I'm hoping that folks will attend. You have succeeded in doing that in your annual events. And I am so looking forward to this. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking this time today, Ani. I appreciate your important work and thanks for taking the time today. And if you want to learn more about TV or and, and the event, just go to mpvusa.org, which is marypetervictorusa.org, and the information about Celebration of Life is there. And thank you, Claudia. Thank you. My guest was Ani Zonafel. She's founder and president of Muslims for Progressive Values, founder and current board member of the Alliance of Inclusive Muslims, and the anchor for December 10th, annual tradition of the celebration of life. Thanks for listening. And I surely would like to hear from you. Please send me an email at C-S-H-A-M-B-A-U-G-H at K-U-C-I.org or tweet me at C-L Shambaugh. And I'd love to hear from you what kinds of guests or topics you'd like me to hurl away the debris on digging out. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. <laughs>